please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Often in the month of January, we will take some time to do a series, sometimes on the family. Occasionally, we have taken an opportunity to talk about spiritual disciplines like being in the Word or having deliberate time in prayer. I do want to emphasize those things in the coming year, and so I will just say to you in love and pastoral care, if, if those disciplines are lacking in your life and you know they are and you need help and you need some accountability, that's what we're here for. The elders exist to, to help shepherd your hearts, and we know a lot of other really mature people here who can help you with that as well, if one of the elders perhaps freaks you out, we can put you with somebody who's, who doesn't freak you out, who doesn't have a title. But whatever the case may be, we're here to help you. And if you need some help in the coming year and you could use some mentoring, we typically use the word discipleship here, come alongside us, let us come alongside you, we want to help. Um, there's a million ways we can do that. And uh, yeah, when you do that, because the natural question that arises in your head is, they'll think I'm weak. We know you're weak. We are too, but that's why we're here together, to pursue Christ as a family. So if we can help you with those things, we, we want to. But I, I didn't want to do that this year. I didn't want to get into one of those other series because we got through Ephesians 1 right before Advent, and I don't want to wait any longer. I want to get right back at it. And so we will jump back now into Ephesians and be in it for as long as it takes. We will cover the first seven verses of Ephesians chapter 2 today. Greg read for us the first ten verses earlier. Really, this section, verses 1 through 10, are one significant thought unit. And perhaps they are even more deep and powerful and rich than you know. These are verses that if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have read, you have probably heard taught, you have perhaps even memorized them and stuck them away in your heart. Remember when I was a little tyke and I spent time back in Awana? These were some of the first verses that I memorized. I could probably sing the Awana theme song to you, but I know for sure, without a doubt, that I could quote to you part of this passage. And the point that our teachers had, and of course our parents, was to get the Word in us, to get even more fundamentally the gospel down into our hearts. But I do want to take some time over the next couple of weeks to go through these verses carefully. We won't be able to probably explain each word in detail because this is not a seminary class, but at the same time, we care very much about teaching the Word in context, and so we will take our time to hit the important highlights to help you understand these verses in their context because after having done so, I want you to see the gospel afresh. I want you to understand the depths of human sinfulness, and I want you to understand the sovereign grace of God, which is the hope for sinners. So let's read together once again these verses that Greg read to us earlier, Ephesians chapter 2, and today we will just cover verses 1 through 7. This is the word of the Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. May God's Spirit bless to us the reading of His Word. To give us a little bit of context so that we can place this where it falls in the larger letter, these six chapters that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, Paul has opened this letter by commending them. They are saints. He says that in chapter 1, verse 1, indicates that that that's how he sees them. That That is their identity. And then as is his custom, he speaks words of grace and peace to them. These are not mere words of formality. Paul spoke these words to the churches over which he had charge because he knew that grace and peace came from God because of the gospel of Jesus. And Paul begins to take time through the following verses in chapter 1 to talk about the great privileges that we have in Christ. In fact, some of the things that he says here in Ephesians chapter 1 are quite shocking. He's overwhelmed with the grace of God, and so he says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, blessed be God. He's overwhelmed with the grace of God, and so he's praising God. Verse 4, he says that God chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Very subtly, knowing the full outline of human history and the story of the Bible, in a summed up kind of way, in a summary way, Paul is saying that God full well knew that the world would fall into sinful rebellion, but He chose to create anyway, and He set His grace sovereignly upon some of those fallen sinners that they would not just potentially be His own, they would definitively be His own. And then he goes on to say that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He has blessed us in the heavenly places, we see at the end of verse 3. So what did this choosing before the foundation of the world accomplish? It accomplishes full salvation. It accomplishes the goal of making us not just rebels turned into worshipers, but sons and daughters that enjoy a full inheritance with God in Christ. Why has God done this? Three times we see in this first chapter, He has done this that His glorious grace might be praised. So there's a two-headed, a twin reason that God rescues fallen sinners sovereignly sets His grace upon fallen sinners to make them His own. 
He does this that He might be praised and so that we will understand and be overwhelmed with His love. So as we have said here many times, He does this that He might be exalted, E-X-A-L-T, that we might praise and worship Him. We will exalt Him high and that we might exult, E-X-U-L-T, we might enjoy Him, that we might worship Him and treasure Him. This is the design of redemption, the purpose of redemption. This gospel that Paul begins to explain in Ephesians chapter 1 would seem scandalous if it were not true, that the God of all eternity would choose to take fallen rebel sinners who never would choose Him, who never would come to Him without His sovereign intervention. That seems scandalous if we understand the depths of human sinfulness. And that is why now, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul comes to that idea. Paul has spoke words of overwhelming grace to the people in this church and now to us. But he wants to set these words, these ideas of overwhelming grace against a backdrop of sin. In other words, we will never understand the depth of the love of God until we understand the problem of the sin of humanity. To put it in another way, we will never understand the glory of the gospel until we understand our need. And that is why Paul comes to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and proclaims to us that humanity is sinful beyond measure. I think perhaps this is a, an easy and succinct way of summing up what Paul says in verses 1 through 3. Paul does not mince words in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I am by nature a cynic. Just who I am, I can't quite seem to shake it, and so I have to walk in the Spirit all the time so that my cynicism doesn't turn into sinful pessimism. But as I consider the history of the church and as I consider the current trajectory of the church, not just in our city, but in our country and truly throughout the world through which I've had the privilege of traveling quite a bit now. It seems that again and again throughout each generation there is a sad tendency, almost a, a tide toward not telling people what is true. Martin Luther, the great reformer, and we celebrate the Reformation this year because it's the 500th year of it, but Martin Luther, the great reformer, used to say that preachers of his day would put a leaf over their mouths so that all of their preaching was veiled and was run through a filter of not offending anyone. And I'm not so sure that we've ever lived in a day that was any worse than this one when no one wants to tell people what's true. This goes back a long way. Early on in the church in the 4th century, there was a monastic, a monk named Pelagius. 
Pelagius was well-known and even admired for his ascetic tendencies. He decried wealth. He lived the monastic and ascetic life of a person dedicated to living outwardly righteously. He believed that with enough force of human will that everyone could do that. But over time, his writings and his influence became more widely known. It became clear that he did not believe that there was a need for sovereign intervention from God to make people righteous, that with enough self-effort and self-discipline and denying oneself, one could remedy one's problems. But he began to lead people astray to the point that there was no longer a need for God to intervene with grace truly whatsoever. And through the influence of faithful bishops and preachers of the age, he was condemned at various church councils. In fact, no one through the history of the church has been condemned at more church councils than the monk Pelagius because he undercut the problem of human sinfulness. And as Paul proclaims to us here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, no amount of self-remedy can fix this. In fact, Paul gives a summary prescription, diagnosis for the state of humanity by saying at the outset that humanity is dead. They're not just damaged, they're not just on their sick bed, they're, they're not just swooning. Human kind, humanity is, is dead. And this takes us back to what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden. God told Adam and Eve that if they disobeyed the one law He gave them, that they would die. One of the confusing things that we find from Genesis chapter 3 is that they don't immediately organically die. They don't immediately face eternal punishment. Their brain keeps working, their heart kept beating. But God spoke words that were more true than they realized, and I think for today it gives us a chance to pause and consider what, what Paul means by death. Because if Paul is right that we are dead, Pelagius and those who came in his stead after were dead wrong. No pun intended. Paul indicates here that what God spoke in the garden is still true for humanity today, that we are dead. Well, what does that mean? You probably have heard this described as separation, separation from God, which frankly I think just begs the question, what does that mean? Sometimes we define things and our defining of a term or an idea just begs more questions. So what does this mean? Well, if we look back at the garden and we look at the course of human sinfulness, I think it means that we miss out on a lot. It means we miss out fundamentally on fellowship with God, something that, that humankind has never quite fully known. Adam and Eve, for a period, for a season, did, but they lost that. They lost peace. Rather than having harmony with God and with each other, instead this was replaced with hostility. But one time they lived in open confidence before God, they turned to live in fear. They missed out on love. And so today... 
still we miss out on love, the love of God that, that brings hope, the love of God that fights back against loneliness. Separation from God at, at least means those things, that we, we miss things, we miss peace, we miss love, we miss harmony. But it means more than that means that we are in open hostility against God. So, from a negative point of view, we lost things. From a positive point of view, and I don't mean good, by positive I mean something came in that didn't used to be there. Negatively, we lost things. Positively, something was gained, but it was bad. What was gained was hostility from God. One of the great questions of the Bible is, When it's all said and done, what are we saved from? Sin? Despair? Lostness? Yes to all those things. But the primary thing or person from which we are saved is God. So what happened when sin came into the world? How do you define death? Not only did we lose things, warfare began. We we were put into open warfare with God. And Paul wants to remind the Ephesian church, and I want to remind you today that unless we understand the depths of human sinfulness, we will never understand the importance of the gospel. So what was their condition? What is the condition of humanity from Adam and Eve on? Death, separation from God, the introduction of things that didn't used to be there. Hostility against the Creator. Losing things that we once had, peace and harmony and hope and love. And what happens once you have that kind of nature? Because that's what this is talking about. What happens when that becomes your identity? You walk in sin. You commit trespasses. This means you break the law of God. And you commit sins. Verse 2, this characterized us. We walked in these ways. This was the course of our life. This was the path that we walked. And not just us, but everybody. Because the world followed this course, verse 2. And to up the ante here, Paul makes it very clear that we are in league with Satan, the great enemy of God, the one who, though on a leash has sway in this world. He is the prince of the power of the air. Under God's sovereign rule, He has allowed Satan to have sway here on this planet in the hearts of sinful humans. And even still, not just in Paul's day, but even now, he is at work in the sons of disobedience. All humans It's interesting that we were made by God as Father to be His children. But once humans chose to turn from God, they became part of another family. They became sons of disobedience. And just to make sure that Paul is not misunderstood, he says in verse 3 that all of us were like that. How do we live? We live in the passions of our flesh. We lived with out-and-out 
movement toward hedonism, toward pleasure, and not in a good way, in an idolatrous way, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That was our tendency. That was the trend. That was the tide that we just couldn't stop. It's interesting here in the middle of verse 3 when Paul says that humans carry out the desires of the body and the mind, that that word mind there could be translated rationalizations. Because at the end of the day, everything that we do with our body begins in our mind, right? We consider sin. Every idol that is put in front of us, whether large or small, is pondered over. We wonder whether or not this thing, this idea, can bring us the joy that we so desperately want because part of being made in the image of God is that we have a capacity for joy. God is full of affection, and His image bearers are full of affection. We have feelings, we have have drives, and our minds are always considering, pondering, how can those drives be met so that we are happy? But because we are separated from God in death, separated from His very life, it makes sense that, that our minds would be darkened. Whereas before we lived under His sway, under His rule, He was the one who controlled all things. He is the one who permeated the planet with His grace. When humankind willfully chose to sin, God gave them up to themselves, Paul says three times in Romans chapter 1. The greatest judgment that God can bring upon the world is that God just gives us what we want, and then we will implode. And over these willful rebels, God gives them this fallen angel of light to hold sway. And now they are sons of disobedience. And now they rationalize all the time how they can sin. Why the trespasses of verse 1 are okay. And because of this, as we see at the end of verse 3, we are under the wrath of God, all of us. This is kind of a downer, right? I mean, why would Paul put this here? He's gone on and on and on throughout chapter 1 about how great redemption is. God chose us so that we would no longer be fallen. God has blessed us in the beloved. He's seated us in the heavenly places. He's given us an inheritance in Christ. He's given us immeasurable power, verse 19. Is is He just a killjoy? Does Paul just want to make people feel badly? In fact, does he have a pessimistic view of who these people are? If we understand these verses in context, Paul thinks well of these people. The designation that he gave them back in chapter 1, verse 1, is that they're saints. They belong to God. They're part of the family of God. But he does want to remind them of who they were. We must understand at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 2, that he does use that tense. You were dead. That's that's who you were. He does want to remind them of, of who they were so they would understand the glory of the gospel. 
Paul does this elsewhere. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. In Romans chapter 7, verses 24 to 25, Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I think the primary reasons why Paul comes back to this are so that we will understand the need of the gospel. I think that's really the primary point. And we will turn there in just a moment. This, this text makes a famous turn with one conjunction in verse 4. But I think the idea is that Paul wants him to understand the need. Their need. Why they needed the gospel. Why is that so important? So that they wouldn't turn from it in the future. And I think just as much we need to understand the need of the world around us. Why do we exist as a church? We exist as a church to make Christ known so that sons of disobedience, children of wrath, like we once were, would also come into the family of God. But if we're not honest with the need, the gospel will never be understood and it will never, ever be embraced. And I think perhaps that's an important way for us to look at this. We must embrace the gospel for conversion, passing from death to life, and for sanctification, growing in holiness. This means that everyone, if they will ever have hope, they must embrace the gospel. It cannot merely be an idea. I think in some ways, to go back to what Luther said about preachers covering up their mouth and not really wanting to tell the whole truth, hedging, and we see this in our day as well, is because we don't want to offend anybody. It seems unloving. That's our natural thought, that whenever we tell someone bad news, it's not very loving. And so in our evangelical world, we've come up with ways of describing what the gospel accomplishes in a way that doesn't seem so offensive. Not too many years ago, I was sitting in a large church, and the pastor, I don't even remember the text from which he spoke, but at the end of the gathering, he had a traditional kind of altar call. Some of us grow up with that tradition. And um, his invitation at the end of this, of this teaching time, which really wasn't about salvation so much, I don't remember what it was about, um, was to come take a next step with Jesus. And so he invited people to come, and there were couple thousand people in the gathering that day. And so he said at the end of his teaching time, if you would like to take the next step with Jesus, then, then please come forward and I'm going to pray over you. And so he did. And then after this brief prayer, there were probably 30 or 40 people gathered down at the front. He told them to open their eyes. And, um, and then he said, okay, you are now children of God. And this is a very evangelical church. Now it's quite possible because God is sovereign and God could do whatever he wants. Some of those people really understood what he was calling them to. They'd been considering their sinfulness for a long time. They'd been considering the call of the gospel, and, and this was the watershed moment for them. That's possible. But most people of any faith wouldn't be 
necessarily disinterested in such a call. I was in a church not too long ago, again, a different one, and the pastor said that he wanted to talk to the people about the gospel. And he said, when it really comes down to it, God wants to have a personal relationship with you. And so if you want to have a personal relationship with God, pray this prayer with me. And then he led people in this like 30-second prayer, and then he finished, and he had everybody open their eyes again, and he said, if you prayed that prayer with me, I want to tell you that I'm excited that you are now a child of God. And again, maybe somebody understood what he was saying. Maybe they understood the backdrop of the Christian message. But if you came in cold to either one of those services that I'm describing, and and sadly, I think this has happened throughout church history and certainly up to this day. We have redefined what it means to become a Christian. We don't talk about sin. Neither of those cases that, that I have described to you today, was there anything said about the problem of sinfulness? It was all painted in relatively positive, flowery terms. And giving the benefit of the doubt that perhaps some of those people understood some of the backstory. We have to be careful that whenever we talk to people about the gospel, we help them understand what it actually remedies. You see, at the end of the day, Jesus is not another charm on a Pandora bracelet. He's not one more thing to bring you good luck. He's he's not one more possible remedy out of loneliness and sadness. Jesus is the one who died in the place of sinners so that they might be rescued. Jesus took the wrath of God temporarily, so that it could be averted from us. Yes, part of being a Christian is taking a next step with Jesus. Yes, part of Christianity is is having a personal relationship with God. But but if the backdrop of that is not explained, then, then are we really helping people come to saving faith? That's why Paul comes back in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, to the bad news. And while we will not dwell here today, and while we're going to make the important and significant turn in just a moment in verse 4, though it's not fun to talk about sin, we have to. Though it's not pleasant, and though if we're being honest, it's incredibly offensive, we have to to do it. We have to have enough faith in the Word of God to do just that. Under inspiration of the Spirit, Paul, with courage, explained the state of humanity. And so the truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, Paul writes these first three verses of chapter 2 because there's a desperate need in humanity. It's not just to get better. This is not enlightenment therapy. We are under the wrath of God, we are under the penalty of sin, and we need redemption I've also said to you, and I will say this briefly, but I think it's important, those of us who have been saved, those of us who have experienced the transformation, the transition that we're going to explain here in just a moment in verses 4 through 7, some of these tendencies still are in us, right? These tendencies still exist in our heart. And as eventually we will get to in chapters 4 and 5, we still sin. And even if it is not our identity, even if we are no longer sons of disobedience and children of wrath, we still do things like we used to. And there's a subtle warning 
if we're careful to read these verses to us. To not be characterized by these things. And though I do not think that the primary intent that Paul had in verses 1 through 3 is to use these verses as an opportunity for self-examination, I do invite you to that. These verses do suggest that we should examine ourselves. As Paul says in his letter to the church in Philippi, we are to work at our salvation in fear and trembling. And we do not want these tendencies to characterize us. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel is one of the most underread portions of the Old Testament, but it yields great riches for those of you who are willing to dig. This story is a great story to pivot. And hopefully, as we briefly look at it, you'll understand what I mean. In Ezekiel chapter 16, the prophet says in verse 1, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of Can- Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. So he's saying to, to Israel, in particular Judah here, that was your identity. You were lost, you were without hope. Some of the most beautiful verses in the Bible follow from there. Verse 6, when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. God took someone who was not his own, someone who was lost without hope, sovereignly made them his own. He made them his child. And even more than that, according to the metaphor here in Ezekiel 16, he made them his bride. He gave them every privilege, which you will find down through verse 14. They became a royal princess. But verse 15, you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby, your beauty became his. You took some of your garments, made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. Israel had every privilege. She'd been brought out of nothingness and given every privilege, and yet she turned from God in idolatry, worshiping other gods, worshiping her idols. A tragic story of lostness. But God would not let this be the end of the story. We won't take time, of course, to read the whole thing. But in verse 59, For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath and breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Verse 62, I will establish my covenant with you. You shall know that I am the Lord 
that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. Which brings us back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God. The Son of God, who had made a prehistoric covenant with His Father to rescue those that they knew would play the whore, those that had been given every privilege would turn from Him in open and willful rebellion. Those who deserved to be abandoned. God didn't leave it that way. And when Jesus took on flesh and obeyed every law of God and resisted every temptation that was thrown at Him and allowed Himself and love to the Father, and love for those who had played the whore, spiritual adulterers, children of wrath, those who had committed trespass and sin after trespass and sin. He hung between God and mankind, between heaven and earth, to atone for the sins, keeping the promises of Ezekiel 16, to bring the fallen bride back to the Father and betroth her to Him again. Brothers and sisters, the darkness of sin, the backdrop of human depravity, causes the gospel to shine in stark and beautiful relief. And so Paul makes this famous transition in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Despite this summation, this indictment of humanity in verses 1 through 3, That's not the end of the story. But God, being rich in mercy, despite the depths of human depravity, God's mercy was larger and deeper. Despite His wrath against humanity, you notice at the end of verse 3, we are children of wrath. That's what we deserve. We are saved from God. How? By God. We are saved from God by God. His mercy was deeper than His wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, lest we forget verses 1-3, through made us alive together with Christ. How did this get accomplished? Looking back at Ezekiel chapter 16, which is an incredible pivot point, humanity had all that they needed because God lavished them with it, and yet they turned anyway. Adam and Eve had everything they needed and more, and they turned in full willful rebellion. And yet what did God do? That came to them seeking them in the garden and promised them redemption and covered them and atoned for their sins, pointing them forward to the time when full atonement would come in the person of His Son. God kept His promises and loved us problem, of course, for all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve is that nobody was seeking for God. Humanity is sinful beyond measure. You have probably heard the term total depravity. Sometimes we use that as a descriptor of the state of humanity. We are totally depraved. The problem with that is it begs a lot of defining. What does it mean to be totally depraved? It doesn't mean that every person's done every bad thing. You and I know a lot of people who 
don't care one lick about Christianity that have never committed larceny or grand theft auto or homicide. It doesn't mean that every bad person does every bad thing. But it means that they are thoroughly corrupt, they are capable of any bad thing, and they cannot and will not come to God. Humanity is sinful beyond measure. So, so what is the remedy? Well, what was the remedy for ancient prostitute Judah in Ezekiel 16? God would have to sovereignly intervene. He would sovereignly show up and arrest Israel's declension, arrest Israel's willful sinfulness, and betroth her to Himself once again. And that's what the gospel accomplishes. God came of His own volition to this planet. God took on flesh. God kept all the laws of Moses. God said no to Satan. God the Son died on the cross in our place. And then God the Spirit, in keeping with the promises of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, brings new life to those upon whom God has set His eternal favor. That's how people come back to life. We call this regeneration. We call this new birth. God makes us alive together. How do we know? We know because we believe. We will learn more about that next week in verses 8 through 10. But God is the initiator, and that's where we will strike the chord today. God is the initiator. Because humanity is sinful beyond measure, God must and has sovereignly intervened to bring sinners back to life. He is rich in mercy, verse 4. He has great love, verse 4. Knowing full well our condition that we are dead in our trespasses, all of our breaking of the law, He makes us alive together. He sovereignly intervenes to arrest our willful trespassing to bring us back into His family. We are hurtling down a cliff toward death, and God stops the fall and brings us back to Himself. But He doesn't just forgive us. Look at verse 6. He raises us up with Him, with Christ, and seats us with Him, with Christ, in the heavenly places. If it wasn't enough that He forgives us our will for spiritual adultery, if it's not enough that He brings the dead back to life, He gives us an inheritance, the same inheritance that Christ gets. And because of the tenses of this passage, this has already happened for us in some sense. In some sense, we are already seated us with Christ, we are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And there's coming a day where we will fully know this. We will be literally with Him because in the coming ages, He will show us immeasurable riches, riches of grace and kindness toward us in Christ. This is one of the most shocking and if not true, scandalous passages in all the Scriptures. The God of eternity who dwells in unapproachable light, who is holy, 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 who hates sin and must punish sin, would bring sinners back to Himself and punish His Son instead. Because that's what it took, my friends. The but God pivot point of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 is only possible because of Christ. 
because Christ suffered in our place, becoming our substitute, because He has been raised to new and eternal life to reign and rule over all things, if we will place our faith in Him, we will be saved. We will learn next week where that faith comes from. But again, to strike the chord of verses 1 through 7, the tone of this passage is that we are totally helpless, totally unable, and the only way to remedy that is for God to sovereignly intervene in human history. And according to Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, that is exactly what has happened. Humanity is lost and without hope, but God. God steps in. God fulfills His plan of redemption. God sent His Son to rescue humanity. Turn with me quickly, please, to Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. The apostle says, but God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood much more, shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? For while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul is very clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, that humanity is sinful beyond measure, and I am sure we have only barely scratched the surface. But God has sovereignly intervened to bring sinners back to life. That was the identity of this church in Ephesus. And for almost all of you hearing me today, that is your identity. And your primary response today should be, thank God. God. Your secondary and important response should be, I will worship God who rescued me. For those of you who doubt, those of you who have never submitted to Christ, those of you who are characterized by verses 1 through 3 today, there is hope for you. I call you today to turn to Jesus who became your substitute, to place your faith in Him your sins will be forgiven. And though you are guilty, you will be made white as snow, and God will forgive and make you a son. His wrath will be removed and replaced with His rich love and His great mercy. There is hope for all. This passage, rich and deep, calls for response, for gratitude and a commitment to obedience by the grace of the Spirit. Or perhaps, once again, perhaps today is the day of salvation. And I call those of you perhaps have hardened your hearts to turn to the God of mercy who will shower you with His love and make you His own. It's easy and tempting for us to look at a familiar passage like this and say, I know this stuff. But I call you to resist that temptation. I call you to look into this passage with great care and faith. Respond with gratitude and a commitment to faithful worship and to faith. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, 
we are grateful that you have taken our place, become our substitute, taking away the wrath of God. We are thankful, our Father, that you enacted this plan, that you carried it through despite our sinfulness and despite the fact that we don't deserve it. You have made us your own. I pray that your people today, God, those who are saints, will respond with gratitude, that we will sing in just a moment with thankful hearts. We will also respond with dependence and submission to walk in your spirit in obedience because you, you've rescued us, you've redeemed us for your purposes that will be holy and blameless. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that there are those today who, who have heard the teaching of your word today and have not yet submitted to Christ, that they will place their faith in him and turn from death to life. Only you can do this, Holy Spirit, and I pray that you will. Give new life, intervene, sovereignly step into their story and make them your own. Thank you, God, for not leaving us where we were, for not giving us what we deserve. Thank you for intervening in human history. Thank you for making us your own. We give you thanks. And by your grace, we ask you to help us to worship you in the way that you do. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.